Let us hear the word of God as we find it written in the first letter of Peter, reading there in the first chapter, beginning at the 17th verse. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, was, was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, I hope that you feel at home here in church this morning, that you feel that you are among friends, and that we realize that we have the privilege of coming together on this day to worship our God. As you know, today is the fifth Sunday in Lent. It has two names in the Christian church. The one name is Utica Sunday, and that's a Latin word. And we get that name from the first word of the intro for today in Latin, which starts out Utica. And in the English it says, Judge me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. So this is Judgment Sunday. Then it is also called Passion Sunday. And that word passion means suffering Sunday. You may wonder where it got that name. Well, as you and I know, we're in the Lenten season. We talk about the 40 days of Lent, do we not? And if we add up, however, from Ash Wednesday to Easter, and we add up the days, we get 46 days instead of 40 days. And we may wonder about that. Well, the answer is that the six Sundays in Lent are not considered Lenten days. They are separate and apart. But our forefathers in the church thought this, that even though the Sundays are not Lenten days specifically and definitely, nevertheless one Sunday of the six should be set aside, that it would take on the Lenten spirit and the Lenten flavor of the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ. And so the fifth Sunday then of Lent is called Passion or Suffering Sunday. And the word of God that I just read is very appropriate for this season of the year and also for this Utica or Passion Sunday. It's taken out of the first letter of the Apostle Peter. And in this letter we find him writing to the Christians of his day, even as by inspiration of God he is writing to the Christians of our day, to you and to me. And this is what he was telling them and what he tells you and me this morning. He says this, he says, pass your time, he says, as you are in this world. He says, pass the time of your sojourning, he says, in fear, and he says, in love. He reminds you and me that we are only sojourners in this world. We are only strangers. You and I are only pilgrims. We're only aliens in this world. And then he says, will you do this 
fellow citizens and fellow aliens, will you do this? Will you see that you pass your time and that you ever carry with you in these brief moments that you are here on earth? Will you carry with you a fear and will you carry with you a love? You and I may say, I wonder what he means by fear, not to be afraid of God because he's talking to us as Christians and God doesn't want you and me to be afraid of him. But in saying, will you see to it that you take along with you every moment of your pilgrimage? Will you take along a holy fear? And by that he means this. Will you have a holy fear, a holy dread, a holy horror of falling from grace and losing your salvation? Will you, pilgrim, will you take that with you? And will you also take with you another something that is holy, a holy love? Will you have this kind of a love uh, that causes you to long for no less than the eternal salvation of every man you meet in your pilgrimage on earth? Will you see to it that you take along with you, my fellow pilgrims, Peter is saying, will you take along with you a holy fear, a dread, oh God, anything but to lose salvation in life? And will you take along a holy love, God, no less than the salvation of every man that I meet? And you and I may say this morning, I wonder why the Apostle Peter calls upon us as fellow pilgrims that you and I who have no continuing city here, that we are to take along with us uh, every moment of our pilgrimage, this holy fear, this holy dread, this holy horror of losing salvation, and to have a love that causes you and me to long for no less than salvation for every man that you and I meet in this world. We may say to ourselves, I, I wonder what's so really wonderful about salvation. We may say, you know, I've heard it since I've been a kid in church. We talk about salvation. Uh, isn't salvation something that is a bit exaggerated after all? That I should care in life and carry with me a holy dread, God, anything but that. Anything to lose my salvation. And oh God, everything to the man that I meet, that I'll do everything I can. I love him that I want him to be saved. And you and I may say, well, after all... Is salvation so magnificent? Is that so great? Is that so tremendous? Is that so terrific? And we may say, oh, it seems to be so exaggerated. It seems to be so blown up, way out of proportion to its value, that we may say, after all, if a person saved, all right. And if he isn't, isn't it something that's all right too? Does it really make much difference? Is it so tremendously great? When you and I turn to the Apostle Peter then this morning, we say, big fisherman from up in Galilee way, why do you say to us fellow pilgrims, will you see to us that you will take with you a holy fear of anything but to lose salvation and a holy love, nothing less than the salvation of every man that you meet. And all because Peter would say, listen, friend, this thing of salvation, this thing is the greatest. This is the perfect gift. This is the gift that is complete. Peter would remind you and me this moment why this gift of salvation, even though it's become shopworn in your Christian life, and even though you say, oh, it's all right, but after all, you can get along without it, Peter would say, this is the greatest. It is the perfect gift. God himself couldn't improve it. God doesn't want to improve the blessing of salvation because there is no improvement possible. It is the greatest, it is the perfect, it is the complete gift. There is nothing that could be added to this salvation. 
that wouldn't make it any finer, any more beautiful, any more magnificent. You and I may say this moral preacher, you're going to have to prove that to me. You mean to say that salvation is the greatest, that it's the perfect gift, that even God couldn't improve it? That's what I'm saying. Even God himself could not make it any better. He could not improve on it one jot or one tittle, making it any better, any more magnificent. It is undoubtedly the greatest gift. You and I may say, well, is that why Peter says, listen, pilgrims, will you take with you a holy dread, anything but losing salvation? Will you take with you a holy love, nothing less than salvation for every man that I meet in my short stay in this world? Because it's the greatest, it's the complete gift. It is absolutely the supreme gift. It is in all respects. It's the perfect gift because in the first place, Peter reminds you and me of this fact. It is the perfect gift because your salvation and mine in Christ, it necessitated on the part of God that God pay the greatest price that even he could pay. There was no greater price that God could have paid for your salvation and mine than what he paid, and that price was the death of his only begotten son. Peter reminded his readers in his day, says, don't forget, pilgrims, you were not redeemed, you were not bought back, you were not ransomed with something like silver and gold. He knew and I said, well, that's pretty precious. Peter reminds them, but this silver and gold, this is passing, this is something that is simply transient. Peter reminds them, don't forget that in order to be saved, God paid the greatest price that even he could pay. Do you realize that for your salvation and mine, the greatest price that God himself could pay was the death of his only begotten son. It meant that his son, the second person of the Trinity, from eternity would come into this world. It meant that he would come into this world and become a human being, to take unto himself a human body and a human soul from the Virgin Mary without sin. It meant that this son, God's son himself, had to go to Calvary's cross and there he had to take unto himself the very sins and the guilt and the punishment of the entire human race and on the cross he had to bear hell and damnation for you and me. That was the cost because there was no other way in order for you and me to be exempted from hell and damnation. We say to ourselves, isn't this thing of salvation, isn't it becoming trite, sort of shopworn, that after all it's lost, lost some of its glitter? Uh, is it so tremendous? It's the perfect gift. It costs something. You and I look at Christmas gifts occasionally, don't we? And we say, I wonder what it costs you. Look at the package, don't you? Look at the box, and maybe they left the price tag on. What was the price of the gift? Because we value the gift with the price. And God would remind you and me that salvation is the greatest. It's the complete gift. You and I couldn't improve upon it if we lived to be a billion because it costs the greatest price that God himself could pay the death of his only begotten son. And therefore, what does it mean? It's the greatest gift because what does it provide for you and me? This gift of salvation provides for us in Christ the deliverance of our soul and body from an eternity in hell. Yes, I believe in hell. 
Today, churches are saying, do you still believe in fire and brimstone? The eternal word of God still talks about hell. It talks about the separation of a man's soul and body from the mercy of God. It gives you and me a glimpse of it. When on Calvary, Christ cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When he was forsaken of God, cut off completely from God's love and mercy, he cried out in agony, this is hell. Yes. The soul that doesn't have Jesus Christ, who doesn't have this tremendous, this greatest of all blessings, eternal life or salvation, this person doesn't realize you can't improve upon this blessing. The greatest cause, Jesus Christ has rescued you and me, ransomed us from an eternity of body and soul in hell, separated from the mercy of God. This is what it means, and therefore no wonder uh, the Apostle Peter says, Listen, fellow pilgrim, will you do this? Will you carry with you every hour of your pilgrimage? Carry with you this holy dread? Have the holy dread anything God but falling from grace and losing eternal life? And if you and I would say to ourselves this morning, I'm going to have a fear of God in my life starting today. There's going to be one dread that I'm going to carry, one fear, one horror, that I don't care what happens to me, this shall not happen, that I shall fall from grace and I shall lose salvation because it's the greatest gift. It is the perfect gift. Even God couldn't improve upon it. Then, if we would say that to ourselves, then every time you and I are tempted to do wrong, every time we are tempted to do that which we know is wrong, we will turn to Jesus Christ and ask for strength so that we are not lost and we do not fall from grace I know that there are a number of Christians who say once in grace always in grace that you can't fall when once you have been saved you ask Simon Peter whether you can fall or not and Simon Peter can say do you mean when you're in grace that you can't fall Simon Peter would say I went down like a ton of bricks in Caiaphas's yard that night I fell from grace and again it is told traditionally that Simon Peter from that time on Every time you heard a rooster crow, he got down on his knees and he asked Christ to give him strength that he wouldn't fall from grace again. We used to have a church in Narian that had a rooster on its tower, reminding Christians going by to be ready, to be watchful, to be on guard. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And we pray and forgive us our trespasses because we, and lead us not into temptation. You and I can fall from grace. You bet we can. A Simon Peter, the big fisherman from up Galilee way fell. And when we say to ourselves, this isn't going to happen to me. There's one dread I'm going to carry in this pilgrimage of mine. It's going to be this, that I am going to see to it that I shall not fall from grace. I shall not lose this salvation. This is the greatest gift. This is the gift without compare. This is the complete, the perfect gift. God couldn't improve upon it. It costs no less than the death of his son. Then we will escape the tragedy of tragedies, once having Christ to have lost him. Judas had him too, you know. And when Judas lost him, Jesus said of him, it were better for that man if he had never been born. There is no compensation. There is no come. Let a man say, well, it's all right if I'm saved, but it's going to be all right if I'm lost. There will be compensations, friend. There are no compensations. There is nothing that can ever make up for the loss of your soul and mine in hell, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. It would be better that you and I had never seen the light of day. And therefore, again, we say to us, this is Passion Sunday. And the Apostle Peter, he calls you and me, says, fellow pilgrims, listen. Will you see to it that you will take with you every hour of your pilgrimage, of your short stay in the world, will you take with you a holy fear, 
a dread, God, this shall not happen, that I shall ever lose salvation. And will you take with you also a holy love that nothing less for every man that you meet, that, that you long, that he may have salvation in Christ. And you and I may say, why is salvation so wonderful? Isn't this a shop-worn thing? And uh, don't we exaggerate it way beyond its real value? Don't we blow it up that after all it doesn't amount to much? But the Apostle Peter would say, listen, it's the greatest gift. Even God couldn't improve on it. Even God couldn't make it any better. It is absolute complete. It is absolutely the very super gift of all gifts. God, if he tried, couldn't make it any better. He doesn't try because he made it the very best. You and I may say, did he? Because Peter would remind you and me in the second place also that again, this gift of salvation in Jesus Christ that necessitated also on the part of God uh, that God give it the greatest preparation that even he could give it in making it possible. Peter reminds his readers, he says, don't forget, God prepared our salvation back in eternity. He foreordained it before he laid the foundations of the world. You know, sometimes we may say, well, salvation must have been a second thought on the part of God. Uh, God created our first parents and they sinned, and then suddenly he came through with the way to save, and it was sort of a half-cocked idea. The Word of God says that it was back in eternity. Back in the ages, the eons, the endlessness of eternity, when God, in his foreknowledge, God knew that when he would create a world, and he would create man in his own image, in the likeness of himself, and even though he would create man perfect and give man a free will, God in eternity, he knew that man would fall into sin. I know you and I could stop and we could ask a lot of questions here then. Why did God go on and create the universe? Why did he create man when he knew in eternity that man would sin? Because God still with his foreknowledge was going to save that man. That man was going to get a second chance. And in eternity, God prepared our salvation. It was something in the eons, in the eons, eternity, timelessness, that God prepared it in his son Jesus Christ. That his son was to come into this world. And this son was to die on the cross for our sins. And that in his righteousness that he merited. There would be heaven made possible for the entire human race. This was a plan prepared in eternity before the foundations of the world. God couldn't improve upon it if he wanted to. He doesn't want to because he couldn't. This is the greatest, this salvation, because it was prepared. It was planned by our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, already in eternity, foreordained there before the foundation of the world was ever laid. And therefore, again, it's the complete gift. It's the greatest. You and I may say it's gotten shop-worn in my heart and life. It doesn't mean much. And I may say, if I'm saved, all right. But it's all right if I'm not. It's perfectly all right for those that want it. But if I don't want it. But the Apostle Peter would say, this is the greatest gift. This is the perfect gift. You couldn't improve upon it if you lived to be a billion. And I challenge you, you add something to it that would make it any more wonderful, magnificent, terrific as it is. Because it bestows upon you and me this this great blessing of salvation means that in the moment of death when you and I have Jesus Christ we are given heaven and that's the perfect bliss of being in God's home freed from any results of sin when Jesus died on the cross and he took the malefactor with him he said today shalt thou be with me in paradise and what does it mean it's the complete gift that when death comes to you and me in that very moment in Christ Jesus, come, ye blessed of my Father. 
inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You and I may have a lot of questions about heaven, but again, when at death we go to this salvation which Christ has merited because we have his shed blood and his righteousness, that is perfect joy. There is fullness of joy. You and I may say, what does it mean? Well, negatively, you know, we know it means to be, again, freed from anything of sin and sorrow and heartache and war and rumors of war and loneliness and anything that, again, sin may have brought. To be in the very presence of our God as our Father and Jesus Christ, this is fullness of joy. And because this is God's home, God couldn't improve upon it if he wanted to. It's the greatest. It is, again, the gift without compare. It is the complete, it is the perfect gift because, again, God planned it already in eternity. Therefore, we ought to say to ourselves, well, if I'm only a stranger on earth and therefore Peter calls to me that I should carry with me not only a dread that I might lose it, oh God, anything but to lose salvation, but I may carry with me a love that, again, causes me to yearn for no less than the salvation of any man that I meet in this pilgrimage. Then if we would say, this is the kind of love I'm going to have for my fellow man, and this is the kind of love which will cause you and me then to turn to Christ and say, give me the strength, that I may, regardless of the man that I meet, that I may yearn for his salvation, regardless of the response that I get from him. Oh, we're hearing a lot about love today, aren't we? Everybody's saying what the world needs is love. This is the thing we need more of, and this is the thing we don't have. And then you begin to say to him, what do you mean by love? And it's strange about everybody you meet has got his own definition of what you mean by love. We see some who say love means just to like somebody and to go out and kick over all the moral standards that we've ever had. Go out and free love and do away with marriage and if abortion is necessary, go right ahead. This is love. Live it up! Is this what you and I mean by love? We turn to the Word of God and the Word of God says, what is love? What God means is this, and when Peter says, will you carry with you a love for the brethren that's sincere? It's this, that I say every man that I meet, regardless of the color of his skin, who he is or how he treats me, that I have a yearn to say, I hope that man has salvation, that he can spend heaven with me, that he can spend an eternity with me, and that I want to treat him that way. Here is the panacea for every trouble. The president just last week called together a group of churchmen from various denominations and various sects and groups and said, you men have the answer. The church does have the answer if it sticks to it. What's the answer to all the problems? What's the answer to the panacea in this world? First of all, the answer is that a man finds salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. That a man is restless until he finds a Savior. Until a man finds salvation, which is that greatest of all gifts, which is, again, the complete and the perfect gift. And then that those who have found that salvation, having this holy dread of losing it, will turn to their fellow man. And they will say, I'm going to love that man into heaven. I don't care who he is. I don't care whether he snubs me. I don't care what kind of treatment I get from him. But I'm going to love him, and I'm going to yearn nothing short of his salvation. That's the panacea Oh, that again will change the world. And when the churches stop preaching salvation, and when the churches stop telling fellow Christians, listen, you've got to go out and you've got to love your fellow man, that you want him in heaven with you, then you'll know how to treat him. If the churches stop doing that, oh, then again, God pity the world, because the church will have lost its aim. I'm proud to be a minister. I am proud to magnify it, because again, there are those that laugh at the ministry and sneer at it and say, what good are you doing? But may I assure you this, it is the very conviction of my soul 
that when from the pulpit Jesus Christ is proclaimed in his salvation, that man, regardless of who he is or what he is, as he proclaims that he is doing something for the eternal value of men, and in so doing, he's got an answer to all the wars and the hatreds and the racial antipathies and the bloodsheds that you and I are experiencing. And then there comes this joy too, the joy of knowing that you and I have done something for a man eternally. Every other thing you and I do for a man, it ends at the grave. But when you and I can love him to the point that we say, I want you saved in Christ with me, and I'm going to treat you that way. The joy, again, of having done something for the eternal welfare of a man in this complete blessing, and also having made the world just a little bit better where you and I have lived. This, again, is what Peter's talking about when he says, Listen, fellow pilgrim, will you do this as you go through your pilgrimage in this short stay? Will you take with you, and will you have it with you every moment of your short pilgrimage, a holy dread? Uh, not, oh, that you don't fall from grace. Don't, don't ever let it happen to you to lose salvation. Will you have a holy love towards your fellow man that nothing less than salvation do you want for him? You and I may say, well, oh, this thing of salvation, I've heard it so long in church, and I've heard it in Sunday school, and it's sort of shop-worn, and it's sort of exaggerated way beyond its value, and you sort of blow it up. What do you mean, salvation? And Peter would remind you and me, listen, well, this blessing of salvation, it's the greatest. It is the complete blessing. It is the perfect blessing. You add something to it. Because he would remind you and me also that this blessing of salvation in Christ Jesus, it necessitated on the part of God the greatest miracle that even God could perform. You may say, what was the greatest miracle that even God Almighty could perform? What was the greatest? You may start to guess. You may say, was it the universe? No. On the basis of the word of God, I can tell you, the greatest miracle that even God Almighty could produce and perform was the raising of his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. That was the best. And if, again, your salvation and mine necessitated on the part of God, not just a miracle, but the greatest miracle of miracles that even God could perform, well, then you and I had better take another look at salvation and say, it must be the greatest. If it required on the part of God, there is no greater miracle that God could perform than what he did perform, the raising of his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, as again the verification of salvation in him. Don't you ever forget it. When in your life and mine we say, oh, this thing's getting trite and shop worn. Who wants the church? Who cares about salvation? What's the difference whether you're saved or not? Uh, it's nice if you're saved, but it's still pretty nice if you aren't. Don't let anybody kid you and don't let anybody fool you. Peter says, listen, carry with you a holy dread. Don't ever let that happen. And again, carry with you a holy love. Bear in mind, this is the greatest thing that you can do for somebody because it's the greatest gift. Why? Because what does this gift give? It's so complete. It assures you and me that having a living Christ, he's coming back and he's going to create new heavens and a new earth for his own. Did you ever think what's coming? 
When he comes again, the present heavens and the present earth shall be destroyed by fire, and there will be a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And our bodies will be raised from the dead, mind you, because of the tremendous miracle that God performed in raising his Son. And we shall put on incorruptible, glorified bodies. We shall be reunited with our souls and with our loved ones. And we shall dwell forever and ever and ever in a new creation, new heavens, and a new earth. Does that stagger your mind and mine? You try and improve on it. You try and improve on salvation. This is what salvation means. This is what God has prepared, and this is what is coming. No wonder Peter says, listen, pilgrim, Will you carry with you every hour of your short stay in this world a holy dread again? Oh, the dread, the horror, the fear of falling from grace and losing salvation. Will you carry with you a holy love, nothing less for every man that you meet, and that he, again, that he may taste of this salvation. And if you and I can say today, this is the way I'm going to live, then we will also pray to him, to bless us and to remind us that we are only pilgrims. You know, God's done everything. You talk about salvation, he's given us a salvation that staggers the imagination. It's complete. I challenge you, you add something to it that would make it finer or more pretty. You can't because God can't. Not that God is limited, oh no. But when he provided salvation, it was perfect. And when it's perfect, it's perfect. This was the greatest. This was the finest. And then God does something. He's thought of everything. God says to you and me, you're a pilgrim. But I know, again, when you walk this earth, you get yourself so tied around with earthly things, you forget it. You forget that you're a pilgrim, that you're an alien, that this isn't your home. And so God says, in order that you don't let it slip through your fingers, I'll bless you if you ask me. I remind you in my word, and Peter reminds us, remember all flesh is as grass, you're as a flower that fades. The word of God tells you and me this morning, we're for you, and I say, yes, I know it. But you know, God's got another way in which he blesses us. He's got a blessing that sometimes you and I don't think it's a blessing, but it is. He has the blessing of sickness. Did you ever think of that? When you and I say, God... I don't let this thing of salvation slip through my fingers. Remind me, God, bless me so that I will keep in mind that I'm only a stranger. I'm only a pilgrim. I'm only an alien. This isn't my home. And God says, I, I thought of that too. I will give you the blessing of sickness. Sickness, it's the blessing of God. Sometimes you and I say, oh, why does God curse me and punish me with illness? God says, oh, no. I'm blessing you with illness and with sickness. It's the blessing with a tear. This is its blessing. When sickness comes, that's when the tear comes. And God says, now you're blessed because it's only when you've got a tear in the illness and you look to salvation, you look to heaven, that you see how wonderful it is. Then it glows, but you've got to see it through a tear. And so God sends sickness. And I think this morning of the blessing of God and illness that he just sent again to my sister. I've told you about my sister, haven't I? 
told you about the, my younger one, of course, who died of cancer. And I told you about another sister that I have, my older sister. I told you one day that they took her to the hospital for a hysterectomy, and they opened her up and they closed her back up because it was hopeless. And I told you, didn't I, that they said she, they gave her three to six months to live. This was it. But I don't know that I told you, but it's seven years since that happened. Again, a pilgrim, but just about ten days ago, the hemorrhaging started again. She called. She's in the hospital, down on her back, and the doctor says, we only gave her six months, seven years ago. There isn't much to be done. But you see, when you're in the ministry and you take care of the sick in your charge, see, last week it was... Riverside Hospital in Columbus, it was University Hospital in Columbus, it was the State Hospital in Columbus, it was Marion General, and Marion Community about every day this week. You see, you can't get away, but at least by telephone I can call to her bedside in the hospital where she is in Belleville, Illinois. You know, it's again the blessing of a tear. And again she told her husband, my brother-in-law John, she said, John, I've had a number of years We've had a very happy marriage. We have no children, but God has blessed us, and the time comes, John. She told him, when you get weary, God wants you to go home. And again, when illness comes through a tear, she lies there, and heaven looks wonderful because, you see, when you see it through a tear, it's tremendous. God thinks of everything. I wonder if the day shouldn't come in your life and mine when we get ill, that we say, thanks, God. This is just what I needed because it's the blessing with the tear. Now heaven, it, it isn't shopworn anymore. Now, it isn't an exaggeration. Oh, God, it's beautiful to go home, to be with dad and mom, to be with sister and to wait my loved ones and to be with Christ. This is it. Oh, listen, don't let it get shopworn in your life and mine. Oh, uh, Peter says, listen, just ask God to bless you. Let him send illness with a tear that you will know I'm only an alien here. This isn't my own. I'm going home. Then you and I can walk the glory road. And oh, when you see Calvary with a tear, when you see salvation with a tear, oh, what a difference Calvary looks like. Then you and I can look at it with a tear and we can say, uh, on an old rugged cross so despised by the world, a wondrous beauty I see. Oh, you got to see it through a tear, you see. You got to see the old rugged cross through a tear. Now, now it's something. For again, it was on the old rugged cross that Jesus suffered and died to pardon and ransom me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till at last again I'll lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross. And you say, and exchange it someday for a crown. It's beautiful. A crown. Thank God that God has thought of everything. It's the crown as we stand at Calvary. And oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's gorgeous because we can see it through a tear. We're only pilgrims, fellow Christians.